Hello all, welcome back to Shame to Sparkle podcast. I'm here today with George Wayne, also known as GW, and he is an incredible, fabulous, everything tenacity in this world human being. He is an author. He is an extremely well-regarded columnist of Vanity Fair who has interviewed literally every name in pop culture, fashion, politics, cinema, and pretty much everything under the sun. He is an immigrant and he has paved the way for pop culture by writing all over the world and being one of the people that people are willing to cut loose and talk with and be scandalous and more. So welcome, GW. How are you? Hello. How are you, darling? I'm so happy to be here with you, Lace. Tag me and Lace it part two. <laughs> I am so excited to have you. I've been raving to my community about this for weeks because I'm oh. an ultra fan girl, so I have to pull myself together. I love it. First off, can you tell my audience just a little bit about yourself, how you came to be this kind of pop icon in your space? Well, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a boy. I still regard myself as a kid, even though I'm like, you know, God knows I'm ready for art. Anyway, I mean, I'm just, a, you know, a, a guy who came from the 66th largest island in the world, known as Jamaica, who, you know, as a 16-year-old boy in boarding school, was reading People magazine for the first time and reading about New York City and Andy Warhol and having a eureka moment. You know, it's like, oh my God, this is what I want to do with my life. And I just loved reading everything that was going on in the culture. I was just always up in current affairs. When my father came home from work with um, the newspaper and Time magazine, I couldn't just wait to grab it and read it. So I just loved that. And yeah, and I was lucky to be able to go abroad to college in America as a foreign student not realizing I was in Athens, Georgia, which was the hip, the heart of the counterculture in America in the 80s, with bands like R.E.M. and Love Tractor and RuPaul, at the, you know, the local drag club at the 40 Watt Club. It was like the heart of the counterculture. And that's where I kind of like developed my sense, or my downtown sensibility while studying journalism. So I got my degree in journalism and took a one-way ticket to New York City because I wanted to work at Andy Warhol's factory. I wanted to meet Andy Warhol. That was my dream. That was my ultimate goal because Andy Warhol had such a magnetic, still to this day, I mean, you know, the myth and the, and the love and the lore. And I'm sure so many other people, kids who came to New York in the 80s came to New York to meet Andy. They wanted to be part of the Warhol community, whether you're an artist, a writer, a poet, an it girl, an actor, you just wanted to come to New York City to be part of all that. So yeah, that's kind of like, you know, where it all began for GW. Luckily enough, my parents migrated to Florida when um, I graduated from college and I moved to New York City. And I've lived here ever since. Were you ever part of the club kid scene? <laughs> the club kid scene. I was part of the club kid scene, but I was the one with a pen, you know? I was the voyeur. I was on the outside looking in. In fact, it's so funny you mentioned that because about two weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me this link for this YouTube channel about club kids. And there are episodes, I think Nelson Sullivan, if you want to look at it, it's really a fascinating series. Nelson Sullivan was this videographer back in the Club Kid era. This guy, you know, would just walk around with this kind of like millimeter camera thing, whatever, shooting video everywhere you went, every, every club, every event. So it's, it is a riveting documentary, you know, from the Michael Alley Club Kid days. To, you know, you see everybody, you see all the legends. And uh, there's some, a few episodes, there's one episode I remember I was watching of us going to Washington, D.C. Michael Alec organized 
a bus trip to DC and, and there I was sitting outside the club at nine, six, nine, six o'clock in the morning waiting for this bus. And it was just funny, we're looking at myself. So YouTube, it's Nelson Sullivan. If you ever want to watch it, you You'll can. You'll have to send me the link. I'm enamored by the whole era. I, I always say in a past life, I was there. <laughs> you but probably were. Kids don't know. They don't know about the club kids scene. And I'm like, you guys, we know. Yeah, I, it, it was uh, fascinating. You know, I mean, as I said, I was just the voyeur. I mean, it was crazy. The, the rider, you know, there are a few of us. We had to document what's going on. So I definitely know exactly what happened and you know the whole drama with my clearly which is sad sad situation but it is what it is so you you started out you make your way to new york you have this dream of being you know in pop culture interviewing these right. celebrities and mm -hmm. you really paved your way up i know you started your own zine and you you eventually got hired by vanity fair when that all came to fruition who was kind of your first big interview where you're like holy crap i made it did you have that moment? Oh, well, th I, that moment happened when uh, I started the zine, you know, because when I got my degree from Georgia and Athens, left Athens to come to New York, I majored in um, and advertising. So I got a degree in copywriting. So, you know, it was the, the cool thing to be a copywriter back in the days, in those days, in the 80s. So I worked in advertising as a copywriter for a while, but I hated having to go to a corporate office. Okay, I mean, I, I was working at a big agency, working on, you know, the Bahamas tourism account and Burger King writing advertising copy. But I just hated that whole thing. I just hated being in, in a corporate environment. And as the, you know, so I, I just had to get out. So I left the advertising, well, they fired me. I went on the unemployment and every night I would go to the, to, um, the Palladium nightclub to try and meet Andy Warhol. So I would go out every night trying to find wherever Andy Warhol would be. So every art gallery in the East Village whether it was the Gracie Mansion Gallery, or then I met this friend of mine, Beard Jones, who, whose father created People Magazine. And Beard Jones was the first person to tell me, you could be the next Andy Warhol. He told me this when I was like, my first year in New York, 1987. And he knew Andy very well. He's, he was the one who introduced me to Andy. And so he would take, Beard was kind of like my mentor. He would take me out. He was the one who really showed me the whole downtown scene. Beard Jones was this really eccentric, Upper East Side, Harvard educated, you know, trust fund kid, you know, but he knew the art world and he knew the counterculture and he knew the scene like nobody else in the world. And so he basically was the one who introduced me to the whole scene and Andy Warhol. Anyway, so I guess my first big interview you asked me would have been um, after leaving advertising and start and decided that trying to get a job in a magazine that no one would hire me because I was not, you know, wasn't published anywhere. So I started my Zine Raw, Raw magazine, which was all my ideas that no one I was showing, right, you know, magazines. And I just did it. And uh, I took it to a little shop in the East Village and they said, well, put it in the corner over there. And they, you know, the, the guy calls me and said, oh, can we get some more copies? People, you know, it sold out. And this guy, David Hirschkin from this magazine called Paper, just called and wants, you know, to call him. So anyway, I called David Hershey. He gave me a job and that was my first byline. But I still did Rome and Rome became such a huge hit that Anna Wintour gave Rome Magazine the, the first interview she's ever done with anyone. And that was my first big get. And that was before I was at Condé Nast because I knew that um, when I was selling Rome at the little magazine shop in, in the lobby of Condé Nast building at Madison Avenue, they would call me and say, oh, Anna Wintour just bought Rome. So I knew how to spot Rome, the, you know, the chairman, the board. And I could believe it. 
I couldn't believe it. I mean, this is like a Xerox zine, you know, it's stapling. This is analog era. This is before computers, you know? But I wanted to do the Xerox format because Jean-Michel Basquiat was doing it with his art and just using the art of the Xerox. And I said, you know what? I could do the same thing, but with my pen and paper and like create a magazine. And well, I called it Rose. It worked for you. It shows kind of, you know, your tenacity in that space. It worked yeah, and, and then, and because of that, I wrote Sign New Hustle Letter, said, could you buy Rome magazine? You know, he said, and he wrote me back the next week. He said, I can buy Rome. I love Rome. I think it's brilliant. But I want you to go and talk to this woman. He had just hired, he was just starting a magazine called Allure, a kind of nice brand new magazine. And he had hired a woman, Linda Wells, to be the first editor in chief. And he said, go talk to her. So I went to see Linda Wells and she sat me down. She said, what do you want? And I knew what I wanted. I said, I want a contract. <laughs> I want to travel. And I want to be at the master as a contributing editor. And she said, okay. And, you know, back in those days, kind of nice was like work, you know, it was the student system. It was like, you know, being at Paramount Pictures or United Artists or Betra Golden Mayor in the 50s and 60s when the student system in Hollywood was the thing, you know? So Condé Nast was like that in the magazine world throughout 20th century. Now it's collapsed, but back then, so that was my, that's how it all began. That's how I got into a lore, four years, and then I went to Vanderbilt for 22. Well, that's what I grew up on. I'm like a Condé Nast. It was exactly. my Bible. It was my Bible growing up. So out of all of these crazy people, I know you've interviewed Martha Stewart and Farrah Fawcett and 50 Cent, and your interviews are some of the most well-regarded historically for getting people to ask or answer these kind of invasive questions. Do you have a memory or a recollection of the most insane person you've interviewed or the most insane moment where you're even like, holy crap? You know, over the years, I realized that I have this really incredible innate gift to sift information from people, to draw them out of their comfort zone, to have them relax and to have a serious conversation and tell me things about themselves that they never said before. Famous people, you know, celebrities who, who've done this, who've been used to being interviewed. I mean, like when you interview a celebrity such as a, a Brad Pitt or a Tom Cruise, which, you know, I haven't interviewed either of them, <laughs> but I've interviewed the Sylvester Stallones and, you know, and the big ones, other big stars, so many. You have to come with a different approach. You have to, you have to, um, it's an art form. People think it's easy to do, to do an interview, especially with a, a hardened celebrity, with an A-list celebrity, it's a, it's, and to get them to open up and to talk to you. And I've just always approached it with, you know, as a, as a casual friendship that we, you know, we are struck with someone maybe at, you know, in, in the terminal of a, you know, first class lounge of a flight going to London and they're sitting at the bar and a drink, you know, <laughs> at JFK and, and you meet someone famous and you have a conversation. That's, I just always looked at it in the sense, just try and keep it casual and, and smart because you, know, you have to be smart. Because you know, when, when you ask, I, I was watching, uh, for instance, yesterday, I was watching um, video footage, live footage uh, from the, the um, James Bond No Time to Die premiere in London. And there was this journalist on the red carpet asking uh, Daniel Craig a question. And all she wanted to talk about was, who do you think should play the next James Bond? You know, it's just, and of course he brushed her off and was very rude, he was very curt. Because it's a stupid question. You don't ask, you know, you want to say, why don't you say to the, you know, to Daniel Craig, is this worthy of an Oscar, a best actor nod, this, your last gig, your last role as James Bond? Do you think you could get an Oscar for this? For this? Instead of asking something stupid like, 
who do you think should play the next James Bond? He's not going to answer that. And he was very curt and very rude and dismissive, which he ought to be. So the point is, when you have the chance to talk to some of these people, you have to be very smart and know your stuff or do your research. So getting, being prepared is rule number one, always. Some of the most famous people, the most memorable ones, oh my God, there have been so many. I, there was, a, I guess, one of the classics. I mean, when, when they do the, when Ryan Murphy does the draw, you know, the movie of my life, <laughs> the GW movie, there's gonna have to be a scene where I go to Washington, D.C. to interview Ariana Huffington. Oh, I love that one. I've read about you so immensely, and I love yeah. that Ariana Huffington rule. <laughs> yeah, so you know that story. Well, I know, I know, my audience might not have, but I'm very, I'm very, I'm a good Yeah, I love it. I mean, I could, we could do a whole series of these chats. I love it already. <laughs> episode one, so anyway. So I go to DC to interview Ariana Huffington. She, at the time, she was still the senator's wife. She was married to a, you know, a senator. And it was, you know, the worst kept secret that he was gay. Okay? So I'm having lunch with Ariana Huffington in uh, this really fancy restaurant in Watergate, the Watergate district. And so I said to her during the interview, finally, I said, Ariana, so can we talk about the gay husband? And she flew into a rage. She grabbed the tape recorder from the table and she ran through the restaurant with me chasing after her. Ariana, give me back the tape. It was just unbelievable. So she never gave me back the tape. So that's where the, so, that's where the rule derived. So that's where the rule, that's where the Ariana rule came in. The, the Ariana rule, I believe, I might be misquoted, is to always carry a second tape recorder and be secretly taping as well in case someone snags it off exactly. the table. Exactly. <laughs> I think you had a few others. I think you had a John Bon Jovi rule. Oh, oh yeah, and then there's the John Bon Jovi rule, <laughs> which is um, some of the interviews I have to do, you know, via, uh, well, back in those days with their telephone, now we can do a Zoom thing. But um, so John Bon Jovi was on the road with his band, in, he was in Montreal, Canada. I'll never forget this. And uh, we had a chat for like an hour on the phone for my column. And um, he was just really in a miserable, nasty mood. And, you know, it was very rude and curt. And so I, finally I said to him, what is going on? Are you having a bad hair day? Because back in those days, you know, it was, you know, the crazy New Jersey <laughs> hair sprayed rock and roll hair that he was carrying, you know, the bad hair of the rock and rollers of the 80s, the 90s. And, oh my God. So I said, are you having a bad hair day? And he went, he just, he was livid. He just, he, he, he was, I could hear him. I could literally hear him, his head explode all the way in Montreal. And so after that, he hung up the phone and refused to sit for the photo shoot for my column for the Vanity Fair photo shoot. And so we had to use an illustration. So the Bon Jovi rule after that was GW, the photo shoot first, and then GW does the interview. That, you know, Graydon Carter insisted on that. So that's how the Bon Jovi rule. And the funny thing is, a few years after that, out of the blue, I got a letter from John Van Drove. I don't know how he got my address. And he said, he sends me this photo of him in a fright wig and says, okay, okay, George, now I get it. <laughs> you know, it was funny. At least he has a sense of humor. It took him a few years, but. So another question that people are dying to know, well, six people asked it, so I assume it's, it's pretty in the minds, is people are dying for your take on this new kind of pop culture wave. And they want to know what you think of the Kardashians, and just the media surrounding them since you've been, you know, in this space for so long. Oh my God. I wonder if anyone would be shocked 
if I told them that I've never ever watched an episode of the Kardashians in my life. I wouldn't be shocked. <laughs> no. I've never watched that show. I mean, what that what that brand has done, what uh, Chris Jenner and, and her kids have managed to engender and you know create out of nothing is nothing short of remarkable. You know, and um, lucky. I mean, I, I read a quote yesterday from where, where uh, was it? Kourtney Kardashian? No, no, Chloe. Chloe Kardashian was saying, you know, how she missed getting out of bed to go get paid to hang out with her family. <laughs> you know. Which is why they were. I think it's. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't like hating on anyone who's successful. I think right. success is just. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah, they've done very well, <clears throat> and to keep it up. Well, the, the most um, impressive thing is the fact that uh, that Kim Kardashian has kind of really mastered the art of remaining in relevant. She's mastered the art of keeping the world, uh, the, the zeitgeist, the pop culture, intrigued. You know, and. Um, it's, it's, it becomes harder and harder every day, every week, every year for them, for a brand Kardashian. But now all she needs to start doing now to, to get us all talking is to start dating Maluma, as the rumors <laughs> suggest. <laughs> I think I'm not, I'm not an, an adamant watcher of, of very many TV shows. I always I love the real, I love, I love the Housewives shows. I yeah, love, I love the Beverly Hills ones. That's kind of the only one I'm super into. I love all of them. I, mean, oh, and, I have to and, know your take on Erica Jane. Do you think she knew? Of course she did. That's what I think. Of course she did. I actually didn't think she knew. Okay, you know what? If, if she didn't know, she didn't want to know. If she didn't know, you don't spend six, you don't blow through $16 million on a credit card. See, unless, I, unless it's like, you know, I've got to spend this as soon as I get I thought, it. I thought good. I'm always like the person who says innocent until proven guilty because I don't necessarily even know my husband's finances. I don't know how to get into our banking. I, oh, it's not right. a okay, that's fine. All well but and then when I watched the documentary and I was like, you watched it? This, yes, I watched it. And I was like, this woman is smart and smart people aren't stupid when it comes to their personal finances in a sense of, you know, if you have two private jets, the kind of capacity where you're at and you're spending millions of dollars on your Amex. They're exactly. But it's, it's, I think cover-up is worse than the crime. I think says, photos, yeah, of course, I totally agree. If she says she doesn't know, she didn't want to know, okay? And she knew. She, there's no way you're going to explain blowing through $16 million on a credit card unless you know, you're in the back of your head, your head you're saying to yourself, where's all this money coming from in my account every month from my husband? $2 million, you know, and then it's like, I got to get rid of it. So she I was... when money goes to my account before. <laughs> And all that money on, on the, you know, on, on her glam squad, she knew. No, and, now I think... And the worst the thing is her attitude sucks. Yeah, I think that the cover-up is like, I always try and imagine myself in anyone's situation. Even if it was me, say my husband robbed someone tomorrow and, you know, we're in the pub, I'd become a housewife. Right. Um, I wouldn't be posting, like, the assless chaps on Instagram. I would be like, let exactly. me sell my Birkins and let me give you some money and try exactly. and... I don't think she has a good team, a crisis management team with all the money she's spending. I don't I, think she wanted one because she could have had one a long time ago. Yeah, she I would be that over the glam and I would maybe tone down the glam because you can always re- I, th- I think people and humans have- First such- of all, she's shown no interest in, yeah. in the victims of that lion ear. Okay? Oh she's, not, had, she's not had said, you know what? Let me do an auction as you suggested. Let me sell off all this stuff. Let me even apologize. Let me say, you know what, people, I, I get it. But not a word, 
Well, an apology isn't an admittance of guilt. An apology is just human empathy. Exactly. Human to human connection. She lacks that. She lacks that gene. What is you know? She's always been Erica, cold as a diamond or whatever. Hard as ice. My opinion. Yeah, she is. Um, she yeah. So I don't feel sorry for her. I hope she stays on the show. She need you know. She probably does need the cash. But uh, (laughs) but she um, she's guilty. That's why I know. I even I have my husband into it. And we watch it every Wednesday, like religiously. I buy it on Prime. And we are so... I watch all of them. I watch all of them. So I haven't seen seen an array of them. Um, I've seen a lot of Orange County. A lot of my friends are on it. I live in Orange County. Really? Yes. So I like to support them. And, and, you know, I like to... Like like the new season that's been shot now, you have friends in that one? I do. I do, actually. I think you'd be great on, on... on AOC. It'd be great. The funny thing is I should be out here right now. I'm going to give you like an exclusive scoop right now. I should actually, I should actually be in Los Angeles right now because my, because um, I won't, I won't say it's like, you know, my BFF, but you know, I would call my friend Hunter Biden has his art show tomorrow in LA. And um, it's going to be at the Milk Studios, you know, the first uh, showing up, public showing up his work. So only for his friends and family. And that's tomorrow. And I should have been in late for this, this really exclusive event, but I'm not there anyway. Is that strange to you? Because I, I've always read how you're so close with um, Ivanka Trump or Ivana. Is it weird that you're close with the Bidens too? Well, I'm close. You know, I, I, know, I know the Trumps better than I know Biden. I really don't. I'm, I've met Hunter two times, twice. But um, I love Hunter Biden's work as an artist. And, you know... Yeah, I know them all. I'm a little upset. I've smoked Ivanka. It's just true. The funny thing is, and the fact is, that Ivanka, I've known her since she was 11 years old. But the day after the election, you know, and I've, I've been, I haven't heard from her since, since 2016 when her father won the White House and she changed all her email and phone numbers. So, you know, fuck Ivanka. Fuck the princess. Excuse my language. That's, that's crazy. That's not, yeah. that's not yeah. crazy. Yeah. So, you know, so what, when what, that presidency did for the last four years is a travesty. It's a, well, today, I, it's just, I think loyalty. I think loyalty speaks volumes of people's yeah. character. Yeah, but you know, so you know, she got caught up in her thing. So whatever. Ivana, her mom, I still love. I love Ivana Trump. She's an amazing woman. And Ivana was kind of like a godmother mother to me in the early days, too, in the eighties, seventies. In sorry, yeah. in eighties, seventies, I was a kid. But in eighties, nineties. You know, I, I would. I always say ten years ago, and I think ten years ago was nineteen ninety still. So I'm like, <laughs> right. every every time I'm speaking to someone, I'm like, you know, ten years ago, ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking it. of speaking of politics, one of the yeah. questions I'm reading the questions I got for you on my social. Okay. Media. Uh, our friend runs a news a news ma- magazine, and he said, "Does Hollywood influence have an effect on celebrities' political stances?" I think. Yes and no, you know, it's, it's hard to hate. It's kind of hard to gauge whether that kind of thing, because when politics, when the celebrities wade into the whole political arena, when someone like um, Cher does it, I think she, she and Jane Fonda, and people listen. I mean, people, you know, we said, okay, because they've been doing it for the, their entire lives. You know, they, it's, it's genuine, it's heartfelt. But, you know, and of course, when celebrities, it's always a given that whenever a celebrity gets involved in the whole political arena, that the right wing media is going to say, you know, they're going to bray and shout or oh, whatever, cares, you know, celebrities, you know, shut your mouth and stay in your lane kind of thing. 
But I think every everyone, they're just you know, they're citizens. They have a they have a right to voice you know their opinion. They have a platform. I don't see anything wrong with it. I sometimes think that when the right ones do it, it makes more sense or it makes more it more resonant than when some others do it. But yeah, I don't see. That's how I feel. I feel like if it's your passion. Right. It's something well versed to you. If you're, it's something you're, you know, you've experienced firsthand, or you've put your time and effort into, then I think it's completely acceptable. Exactly. To bring in. Exactly. I think sometimes now when it's like a younger TikTok star or something, I get a little like, okay, I completely agree. Rolling my eyes. I mean, but that might just be me getting old. <laughs> becoming. I mean, the thing is, like when Angelina Jolie does it, you know, you, you know, it it's coming from a good place, you know, but at the same time. What's upsetting me about Angelina is that she does that stuff, and then she, in her private life, she does really insidious things, like you know what she's doing to Brad, you know, and this this, this constant vindictive, as he himself calls it, way she's handling the divorce, and you know this, the acrimony. It's all her. So you know, so in a way, she has this image, this public image of always you know doing the UN stuff and and you know and highlighting so many important things, and then. She sort of sullies it for me, you know, personally, when she, she can't just let go and don't be vindictive towards her husband, her ex-husband, who's the nicest guy in the world. Because I know Brad, and he's just an incredible soul. And for what she's done to him, I think it's just really, really, really in poor taste. Well, and that's hard. I obviously don't know Brad Pitt, so <laughs> I don't have a great, uh, yeah. great call, but I trust, I trust your, your opinion. I know I have to wrap up soon. I have so many other questions for you, though. But I wanted to ask one question that's kind of not related to pop culture, because this is a podcast about overcoming shame, adversity, you know, really making your life's pains into your triumphs. And I wanted to ask you, because I genuinely couldn't find this published anywhere. Maybe perhaps I was looking in the wrong place. But did you ever feel like you were made to feel shame in this, you know, Hollywood space you were kind of thrown into? Did you ever feel like an outcast? Did you ever feel not accepted? And if so, do you have any advice to my listeners on just how you became, because to me, you're like an enigma. And I don't, I don't think very many people are an enigma. Um, I think that's why I've been enamored by you. And I, I'm just one of those people. You know, I'm really, I always thought that I, I was very confident in my capabilities and what I could do. I went to boarding school, you know. I wasn't a kid. I was a skinny boy in boarding school. I was a skinny kid who looked like, you know, like a pole, you know, shy cat. I do think, guy. I do think, sorry to interject. I do think boarding school gives people a layer of strength. I had my friend Caroline on the other day. You would love her. She's on Housewives of London. And she spent her childhood in boarding school and she said, I really have self-mastered strength because of it. And I think that maybe that's the same. For you. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, oh, no question about it. I mean, you know, I, when I look back, I mean, I was, a, I was really bullied in boarding school, but I wasn't, I wasn't like, the, I wasn't Mr. Popular until I was on the quiz team. Then I was Mr. Popular, <laughs> you know, so I found my niche. I, did, I wasn't jock. But I found my niche in, in boarding school. I, yeah, I was blessed because it was, you know, when your parents send you away as a 14-year-old kid to, you know, basically a prison, you know, and you're getting the worst food in the world, you cold water showers, you know, a little bunk bed, and for seven years, you know, of your life. But it was amazing in the sense that I went to the best boarding school in the West Indies. It was like Eton of the West Indies. So, and it taught me so much. And so I was on the quiz team. So I was on the quiz team, which was like, 
back in Jamaica, being on the quiz team was like being an American Idol because it was a quiz competition amongst all the high schools in Jamaica. And it was on live television, the quiz bowl. So I was on the quiz bowl team and, and you know, I was on TV. So my last two years at boarding school, I was the campus superstar. So then- TV superstar at that point. Yeah, yeah I was getting fan mail. <laughs> you know, it was funny. And so I ever feel like the outcast, of course. When I was at Condonas, I felt like an outcast. I mean, I was the only black face, you know. There was only one other black person. I was the, you know, when uh, there was Andre Lee and Tally at, at Vogue, and, and there was me and a few others, you know, scattered about. But yeah, there was, you know, I, I didn't understand the, the unconscious racism that was going on around me, but it was. And I look back and I think of, of my contracts and what the money I was paid compared to what other contributed editors got for their contract, I realized the disparity and that I was basically fucked over, you know, and, and that and looking back now, I look back at it with a bit of anger, but yeah, it upsets me to know that I was basically, I didn't get the just reward that I would deserve, but everybody said there was no parody. There was, finding that out has been very hard and um, upsetting, but so in the, in the sense, I guess that's the time I really felt as an outcast. I just try to, you know, I mean, of course, there are days I don't want to get out of my bed. I, you know, there are days, you know, there are days when I, I just have to, you know, try and keep my mental health together. You know, this whole COVID thing, I must say, I kind of took as a blessing in disguise because it gave me a lot of time to be introspective. And as always, a loner, I'm a writer, you know. So being cocooned and just working on your craft for me was great. I didn't mind it at all following the culture so much and, and what's going on in the whole political arena, which is very important to me. And also, you know, it's been a tried four years. You know, it's been, this is, this, the world is in flux. I mean, you know, it's like, is it gonna end by 2036 as some people say? Or is 2036 gonna be the year when Amanda Gorman becomes president as she says she wants to be? You know, she's gonna run for president in 2036. You know, Amanda Gorman, the poet laureate, I do, I do right. think that's a great a sentiment for people who are listening that it shows, you know, yeah. during this time is still something that even the most fabulous socialite personality in New York, like you have days where you still feel drained. So I think that that's a great, you know, context for anyone listening who's like, holy crap, I feel this universal draining of me and you're not alone in that. No one's alone in that. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, I just want, I just want, you know, everyone, we just have to, we really have to start thinking of what's going on and really read real information, not misinformation. You know, you just, you gotta keep up with, with the world. You just have to be. No one watch the news. <laughs> oh, except me, I guess. <laughs> except me. Turn on the news over here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, what other questions? Um, I think I'm I think I'm good. I mean, I've asked you so many. I have so many questions I got, but they're just so silly. You know what's a funny one? I don't know if I'm gonna offend you. If so, I'll remove it. I don't care. So I my my community on my you know social media and my podcast knows yeah. I'm obsessed. Yeah, is, your, is your pod like what's what's its rating? Are you in the top ten? It sounds like you are. I'm not in the top ten. You guys need to leave me more reviews. Okay. I will have to. So I have a thing where when I'm blue, I post videos that make me happy. And I am not exaggerating to you because you're here. I don't really sugarcoat anyone who comes on. And I've had some great guests. I have a video of you 
at, I believe, Fashion Week in a bar with Kelly Catrone, where you I love, take I love it. crystal from her. I thought it was a pill. And my, I did. my personal friends laugh because that is such a me move. I mean, pre-pregnant pill. <laughs> And yeah. it's my all-time favorite video. My, I hope you I got it. So, really so many people, so many people love that video. I really thought I thought it was I thought it was ecstasy. Where? Okay, I did. All right, I did it. I thought it was like a Molly or something. But I, you know, if we're at a party. I mean, it's not I do a Molly every day or ecstasy, but you know, Kelly <laughs> and I, she's an old friend. I just assume that it's like you know, put a pill on my tongue, came in for takeoff kind of move. So, but. Uh, it was hysterical. I, I, like so many people still comment on that. It's hysterical. I get people on um, on my Instagram. By the way, please follow me on Instagram, people at Georgie World Official. I yeah. need followers, people. <laughs> I get DM. I get DM from people from uh, from, from some friends and reminding me about that moment. And every time I see Kelly Control, we have a good giggle about that. Yeah, so yeah. So I, I, I used to be in LA and I'll never forget when I met Kelly Catron. She scared the living crap out of me. I cried half the way home. I can't imagine. Oh my God. But you don't even know the story. So, <laughs> yeah. So, when I say, you know, so the other day I was um, walking through Soho and I see Ryan Murphy, okay? Now, I've read Ryan Murphy a few times. And I was upset with him because I sent him an email. He doesn't respond to my email. So, I stopped him on the street. I said, Ryan. You know, I sent you an email, you didn't respond to me because he did this show, did you what? Well, there's two things. He did the impeachment one, and I sent him an email with an interview that I did with Paula Jones. I interviewed Paula Jones and um, James Carville for my column at VF, but they never ran those interviews because they were so incendiary, and this was during the Clinton impeachment, that had we run the interviews in, during, during that time, he would have been impeached. There's no question. But that didn't stop. No, this is a very scary time. Anyway, so I interviewed Paula Jones. She told me everything about Bill Clinton's penis down to the watermark on his penis. So it was such an incendiary interview that Braden Carter said, we can't publish it. It was so hot. It was too hot. And then I went to interview James Carville, who, of course, was Bill Clinton's political hackman, hatchet man. He's the guy who got him elected, the Machiavellian operative who got him into the White House. And James Carville is another real Satan. And I told him everything Paula Jones told me, down to the penis mark and the watermarks on Bill Clinton's dick. And, and he, was, he was so shocked. He was so livid. But you know what he did? At that interview, too, we couldn't run because Raven got scared. That's what, you know, he didn't want to upset the White House. That's real. That's what happened. And, um, but that didn't stop James, uh, James Carville. But James Carville had me followed, surveilled for the next 10 months after that because of that interview. So... When you mess with politicians, you sometimes, you know, you don't want to Well, I know, I know a few things about politics, and I know I do not want to mess with the clerk. Yeah. So if anyone yeah. from their camp ever finds me, yeah. it's me. Kelly and I, no, this is a funny story. I've got to tell you this, Lace. So Kelly, this has got to be a movie. I mean, I'm trying to, so I've been working on my, new, my third book also, I should tell you, which is actually going to be the real memoir. I'm really going to tell the whole, everything. And, um... I have to talk about, of course, the chapter where I live. Kelly and I basically lived at the Chateau Mama on her mother's a Black American Express card for like three months during the LA riots, okay? When the first riots, it was just crazy. I mean, the stories I could tell you are just out of control. 
So Kelly and I living at the Chateau Maman during the Los Angeles riots of 1991, two or something, when it was the first one, the Rodney King riots, is a story that got to have a page turner. It's, it's got to be a movie. It has to be a Hollywood movie one day. Well, you have so, to write the next book and I can drag you on the podcast. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure I'll see you before that. <laughs> we'll do a part two anytime you want. Just let me know. Get you out to LA to hang out with me because then my, my dreams will come full circle. Exactly. Uh, when, when are you due? Uh, at the end of the year. Oh, okay. Perhaps two. In fact, I, I'm coming to Los Angeles very soon. When I come out there, for sure. I'm saying it by ear. But you know what? My high heels still fit, so I'm good. I'm kosher. I love it. Oh, I love it. So, anyways, thank you so much for being here. As always. My thank pleasure. You, thank you guys for listening. Please leave a positive review. They really yeah, have. Thank you guys for listening, too. GW Adores this conversation. This is great. And Lacey, you're the best. Um, anytime you want me. Well, I, I can have you as my co-host, but as always, anyone sharing their truths here does not take away from the space for you to share yours. Anyone shining does not take away from the space for you to shine. Go do something fabulous. Go create something. And thank you guys for listening to Shame to Sparkle. George Wayne's socials are all in the show notes. Give him a follow. Buy his book. You will not regret it. Thank you, guys. <laughs>